We are going to be continuing in the book of Colossians, so if you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians 2. Uh, You will notice that we are skipping over some verses that we said that we were going to cover if we were going to continue on through the book. There were several verses here that we skipped over, specifically verses 8. We read last week, but verse 9 and verse 10, and we're heading directly to verse 11 and 11 through 13, and there's a very good reason for this. Verses 11 through 13 deal directly with relating circumcision to baptism. Uh, it is a very important topic, and given the context in which it's found in, it doesn't, what we need to talk about is not directly pinned down and related to um, exactly what we see in the larger context. So the thought that I had was we would t- spend this morning, this week, we are going to talk about the relationship between circumcision and baptism. Because after all, we are Baptists and we need to know what we believe and we want to have centered biblically what we believe and why we believe it. And this is a very important verse because our view of baptism, if it is challenged at all, is challenged most strongly by this particular verse or these two or three verses. We are Baptists, of course, and that means that creedally, we think that it is only right to apply baptism to those who have confessed belief, but we are not in solidarity with the rest of Christendom in that. The vast majority of Christians in this world do not see things our way. Instead, they think that they should baptize their children. And so they often do infant baptism. This runs from uh, Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodox, all the way through Presbyterian, Methodists, Anglicans. All of them would baptize their children. We do not. Okay? Now, before we begin to look at why we don't, and the importance of baptism and the comparison between baptism and circumcision. Let's set why they argue this, and I will try to do this in the best possible light. I'm not going to try and shortchange them. I'm not going to try to sort of minimize what they believe, but I will try to put it in context. They believe that as circumcision was given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament on eight After eight days of birth, every male was to be circumcised. We will read passage after passage this morning that talks about after eight days, you are to circumcise them. Passage after passage, meaning literally two passages today. But nevertheless, it's it's there. Eight days. Once it's in there once, it's in there enough. So eight days, you're supposed to circumcise them. And then by the time you come to the new covenant, what we have is we have circumcision falling out. Paul specifically tells the Galatians, listen, if you get circumcised, you have nothing in Christ anymore. You are obligated to keep the entirety of the law, and therefore you have fallen away from Christ in the beginning of chapter 5. So we see that circumcision is waning, and instead what we have is baptism, they argue. Then they come back and they say, okay, now, why or what or how should we handle baptism? We know that it is commanded, but how should we handle it? And those from these various traditions, and right now I'm going to focus primarily on Presbyterian tradition, by the Westminster Confession of Faith, they believe that they should baptize their children primarily because it is a continuation, it is an agreement and an analogy from the Old Covenant. They say, listen, God clearly has something for families. He loves families. And just as Isaac and Jacob came from Abraham and they were circumcised because they came from Abraham and then all of their children thereafter were circumcised. It is clear that God sees this sort of family connection in covenant and therefore when we are bought into the new covenant through the blood of Christ, we also then ought to get our kids into the covenant through baptism. 
They say just because, because baptism is clearly a New Testament initiation into the covenant, just like the old covenant was it through circumcision initiated into the covenant. Therefore, the two stand in analogy. Therefore, we ought to baptize our children. Now, the interesting thing about that particular way of arguing is that nowhere in the Bible, except for our passage today, are circumcision and baptism actually directly linked. This is the only passage in which those two are. All the more reason why we need to settle down and sort of go back over why it is that we baptize people. Specifically, we baptize believers, and even more specifically, we baptize them in a great big tub of water where we plunge them in and then bring them back up, okay? So that is our task today. The passage that we are going to read then are these three verses. I know that there is only two written in the bulletin. That is my fault. Um, We really do want to go down to 13. So we'll be reading Colossians 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. Colossians 2, verse 11. In him, that is Christ, you were also, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. May God add his richest blessings to this reading of his word. This passage really alone ties so terribly closely circumcision and baptism. If, if there was ever a passage in which Baptist beliefs would fail, it would be here. Because here, Paul directly links the practice of baptism to the practice of circumcision. And it is here that they can say, ha-ha, there is the analogy, there is the continuation. What was circumcision has now become baptism for a number of different reasons, but now it's baptism. So because they, they circumcise their children, we should also baptize our children into the covenant. So what will we make of this? Well, first, we need to go to the Old Testament, and we need to look at what circumcision really was. The first place we're going to go to look at circumcision is going to be Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, this is the first time God has set forward circumcision as the right by which all of Abraham's sons will be called his sons. If you are a legitimate son of Abraham, you have to be circumcised, as this passage will make clear. Abraham has been called out of Ur. He has been given promises by God. And then in Genesis 17, those promises are reaffirmed with a hitch. And that hitch, if you want to call it a hitch, is probably a negative way to put it, but with a something added on to it, and that is circumcision. So we'll read from Genesis 17, and I will read verses 1 through 11. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now listen to the emphasis that I place on these words and see if you can pick up what I'm emphasizing. Verse 6, 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. And you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of covenant between me and you. And after that, he goes in to talk about the eight days. Eight days after that male is born, he is to be circumcised. If he is not circumcised, he is cut off from his people. He does not belong to Abraham. Now, why did I emphasize things the way I emphasize them? It's important to go back to read this passage and to understand exactly what God is setting up here. Physical circumcision, 1.1, is a reminder. It's a reminder. Listen to that covenant, and hopefully you notice the things that I was emphasizing in there. God is unilaterally and unboundedly promising Abraham stuff. You will be the father of a nation. I will make your offspring great. I will give you a land. I will be your people. God is saying, I am going to do all of this. And then the only thing that he commands out of Abraham is to keep the covenant. And the covenant was circumcision. But what specifically was circumcision to do? It says specifically, every male, um, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. In other words, the whole purpose of circumcision was to be a sign of the covenant, right? So their part of the covenant was to remember the other parts of the covenant. There was only one other part of the covenant, and that was God simply giving them everything, okay? So circumcision in its most basic part was simply to be a reminder to the people of God that God was going to do everything that he had promised to them. It was a reminder to them. But physical circumcision was not just a reminder. Physical circumcision was an initiation. It was what made you part of the people of God. After Abraham, we have Isaac, and then we have Jacob, and then all of Jacob's sons. And at the end of Genesis, they go down into Egypt. And this is good at first, but then in the beginning of Exodus, it becomes bad. A pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph. And so because he doesn't know Joseph or his offspring, the Hebrew people are put into slavery. And eventually God raises up Moses. Moses comes before them. He brings 10 plagues upon them, the 10th of which is the plague of the death of the firstborn. So he has promised that there will be the death of the firstborn for everyone who does not engage in a ritual that we now know of as Passover. They are to take a lamb, they are to kill it in a certain way, and most importantly, they are to spread blood on the lentils of their doorposts because the spirit of death will come and seek through all of Egypt and he will take the firstborn lives of every son. Now, if you're the second son and you don't like the first son, maybe this isn't so important. But if you're a parent with one son, or if you are the first son, or you love the first son, it's kind of important. You really don't want him to die. And so the Hebrews went through and they did exactly what was mentioned for him. They did exactly what was called for and they put it on the doorpost. But we read this in Exodus 12. This is right before it's going to happen and God is giving instructions for the Passover. And in verses 43 through 48, Moses says this. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. What does it mean? And this is one passage, but passages are all over the place, including Leviticus 12, 3. What does it mean to be a person of the Hebrews? What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? It means that you are circumcised. What puts you inside the people of God? It is circumcision. The promises were given to Abraham and to his offspring. And therefore, therefore, when we read these passages, it makes it sound as though to be part of the people of God means that you need to be circumcised. Okay, that puts you as part of the people of God. So physical circumcision is a reminder. It is an initiation, but it also introduces a conflict. Shortly after the exodus happens, we have this incredibly significant event as the people are brought through the Red Sea, which Paul links to baptism, but we're not going to deal with that today. He brings them through the Red Sea and he gives them the law. Now, if you remember precisely what we just got done talking about, the whole point of circumcision was to remind the people that God promised to do everything. There was only two bits to the first covenant. I will give you everything that I have said. You will have circumcision as a reminder of what I have said. But as soon as we get the law, we have, well, like laws, man. We, we have all these requirements that tell people what they're supposed to be. Of course, in Leviticus, we have, you are going to be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. You see, one of the problems in Genesis is as we read through Genesis, we are reminded that Abraham and his clan were not the greatest people. They're just not. Abraham is afraid of Pharaoh. And so he looks at Sarah and he says, man, Sarah's really gorgeous. I'd hate to die because of that. So I'm just going to say that she's my sis and then let him take her as his husband, her, her wife, or his, his wife, you're going to marry her. And I'm just going to let her sort of be used that way to keep me free from it. any problems that might arise. Isaac ends up doing the same thing. Jacob, man, Jacob steals the birthright from his brother. Even as God foretells it, he still steals it from his brother. He is duplicitous in every single thing he does. And then his kids collaborate together to kill one of their brothers. Only one of them stands up and says, okay, let's not be stupid about this. Let's not kill him, right? Let's just sell him into slavery. That'll free us. That, make sure we don't get real guilty here. What you, what you pick up on is the fact that even though these people are circumcised into the people of God, they don't actually know what it means to be the people of God. So then, as the law is given, what is God doing? He's explaining to his people, this is what it means to be my people. If you are going to be my people, you have to be holy as I am holy. 
You have to do the things that I'm requiring of you. You have to keep the Ten Commandments. You've got to keep all of these symbols, all of these rituals. You've got to eat this food. You can't eat this food. You, you can wear this. You can't wear this. There's years where you can do this economically, and there's years where you can't do this economically. You've got to make your fields like this, and you've got to make sure that the edges of them are clean so poor people can come through and give them. You're allowed to give sacrifices this way, but these people are allowed to give sacrifices. These people aren't. He's very particular about the whole thing. He says, if you are going to be my people, you have to do this. Now that is clearly a difficulty because again, the initial promises to Abraham were free of any conditions. They were, as we would say, unconditional. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. You are in the people of God because I say you are in the people of God. And then what happens? In the law, we get command, 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 command. So circumcision brings with it its own problem, and the law reaffirms circumcision. The law as an, as the circumcision as an initiation into the law. The law becomes what it means to be part of the people of Israel. Moses recognizes this, and in Deuteronomy 27, 28, specifically 28, as he has gone up on the mountain, he has already given the law once. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. It's really kind of a bad way to put it. It's a sermon. And so Moses has gone up on a mountain and he looks and he can see the promised land, but he is not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so he is giving his recitation of the law. He is repeating the law for the people so they would know precisely what God requires of them. And he comes to the end of it in Deuteronomy 28 and he says, here are the blessings for keeping the law. Here are the curses for keeping the law. And I'm going to tell you the blessing section is really small. The cursing section is gargantuan. And there, it's like that for a reason because he clearly assumes that the people that he's looking at, that he has traveled with for 40 years, are not going to keep the law. Amazingly, he says this in Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 6, at the very tail end of the sermon. After giving blessings and curses, he says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, he is assuming, flat out, he is assuming that the exile is going to happen. The curses, the, the majority of the curses were, you're out of the land. And in essence, what God is saying is, you will break my law and you will act as though you are not my people. This is something that Isaiah and the other later prophets pick up on. You are not my people because you are not holy as I am holy. So I'm going to drive you out of the land. I'm going to kick you out of the land. And Moses just frankly says, you will be scattered. There isn't if you do this or if you do that. Moses just flat out says, you will be scattered. You will be exiled. You will be booted out because you will not keep God's law. When you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there will the Lord your God gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into a land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous than, and numerous than your fathers. Okay, that's great. That's great. That seems a lot like the initial promises that God made, right? Same, same sort of promises. Many, many people, I will be your God, there will be land. Nations, land, 
peoples, I'm your God, you're my people. It sounds exactly like the exact same promises that were given to Abraham. What of the law? What of this dilemma that has been there? Here is the resolution to it in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul that you may live. No longer will you live in death separated from God, but he will circumcise your heart. Moses sees the problem with the covenant. He sees the problem with the law. He knows very, very well that the law says, unless you are perfect, you will never stand a chance to be God's people. You are to be holy for he is holy. And at the same time, he very well knows that those promises have been given. So he makes a way. He reframes the sign. No longer is it an outward symbol of what you are. He says, God, not you. The original commandment is what? You will circumcise your son on the eighth day. He doesn't say you are going to circumcise them on the eighth day anymore. He says, God will circumcise your hearts. Spiritual circumcision or heart circumcision is the resolution to the problem. Moses calls for this more than once in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22. Jeremiah calls for this in Jeremiah 9, 25 through 26. And more importantly than that, we get the exact same sense in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The new covenant, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is while the people have been scattered abroad. They are now in exile. Exactly what Moses has foretold has come to pass. Jeremiah in exile says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He says, there is an a answer to the exile. There's an answer to the fact that you can't keep the law, and that is a new covenant, but precisely where does that new covenant rest? It rests on the heart. It is now a covenant not written in stone, not written external to the people, but written into them, into their hearts. Ezekiel 36 says almost the same thing, although he does take different, different specifics with it. Still, in exile, Ezekiel writes, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. That sounds exactly like Deuteronomy 30. Wherever God has been scattered, whoever he has scattered you to, he will collect you from there. He will bring you back. The Lord, your God, will do this. He will bring you back into the land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. What was the problem? They couldn't obey the rules. So what does God do? He says, I will write my law on their hearts in Jeremiah. And Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit in you and I will make you do it. You will be my people. I will be your God. You will be holy for I am holy. God has promised that he will do this. This is spiritual circumcision. This is heart circumcision. Okay. So while physical circumcision brings about a conflict, heart circumcision becomes the resolution. Now we can turn back to Colossians and look at baptism. And although there is much to say about baptism, we are going to limit ourselves to only what this passage says. There is much more than what I'm going to be able to convey to you that baptism is speaking towards, but we need to talk specifically about what baptism is here so that we can understand better how the comparison works to circumcision. 2.1, baptism corresponds to initiation. There is no doubt, there is no doubt that Presbyterians and others who argue that just as circumcision entered you into the people of God in the Old Testament, baptism enters you into the people of God in the New Testament. There is absolutely no Christian organization ever that should deny that fact. Baptism simply seems to be the very first thing that happens to make you part of the people of God. You will notice that Paul does not say, if you are having problems, maybe you should go back and be baptized here. He is simply assuming, after only hearing about their faith, that they have already been baptized. This is what he said. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. He says that it is just flat out assumed. You have been baptized. This is what Christians do. When people are converted, we baptize them. It is the very first step. It is an initiation. However, this baptism corresponds to heart circumcision. It does not correspond to physical circumcision. There's several ways that you can see this in this particular phrase. There's two phrases, actually. One, the circumcision that's being talked about says you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It is not like physical circumcision. It is heart circumcision. And as we read through what heart circumcision was compared to physical circumcision, they were vastly different things. They were not the same thing. Simply because the word is there doesn't mean the two procedures are alike. They are not. They're not alike. So it is clear that it is a spiritual or a heart circumcision that is being, that is corresponding to what baptism is. Secondly, Notice the phrase, a putting off of the flesh. That putting off of the flesh, man, that has a whole bunch of implications when you're talking about circumcision, right? Because we know what circumcision is. It is literally a putting off of the flesh, but it's putting off of part of the flesh. What baptism means and what Paul means by putting off of the flesh in the spiritual circumcision is not a physical flesh in you but it is literally the sinful nature that you have. Paul often uses the word flesh to imply sinfulness in human beings. And when he says you have put off the flesh, putting off is almost a weak way to say it. It is literally you have undressed yourself. 
Just the same way you take off clothes to get in the shower, to take a bath, right? You take all of them off. That's what he says. You're taking off literally the sinfulness of the flesh. You are taking it all off. Listen, circumcision doesn't do that. The whole point of circumcision was this, that that physically entered you into the covenant, but the whole problem with being the people of God is that that was never enough to make them obedient. When Paul comes back and talks about putting off of the flesh, he says, you are putting off everything sinful. God will circumcise. No, you have been circumcised. He doesn't say you will be or maybe you are being. He says, you have been circumcised with this by the putting off of the flesh. Baptism puts off all of the flesh. It takes off the sinful nature of human beings. It corresponds to heart circumcision. There is another way to think about this. And this is biblical. We're, we're going to lead you to see how this is biblical. John 3, 1 through 10. We'll read through this and we'll talk about it. And then we will go back to Ezekiel and show you how John and Jesus are pulling this from Ezekiel. Okay? And you can kind of see how this corresponds to both circumcision and then heart circumcision. So John 3, 1 through 10. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, if I, sometimes I forget what I talk about, so you'll, excuse me if I've talked about this before. Nicodemus is not a fool, okay? He is not an idiot, although this makes it seem like he's kind of an idiot, okay? But he's not. So when he hears Jesus say, you must be born again, okay? He says, okay, that's a metaphor. I realize that's a metaphor, it's not, just, it's not just changing part of your life. You're saying you've got to become a whole new person. So what he hears is Jesus speaking, this is my interpretation of it, I think he, he's hearing Jesus speak what he assumes is hyperbolically, okay? That you have to become an entirely different person. You've got to sort of restart your whole life. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, all right, you want to play hyperbole? Let's play hyperbole. How are you supposed to do that, Jesus? Should I go into the womb and be born again? So he's matching hyperbole with hyperbole. He's being sarcastic in his response. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He turns around and he says, No, 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 seriously, Nicodemus. This isn't like a hint for you. This isn't hyperbole. I'm literally telling you, if you are not born again, if you are not a whole new person, you ain't got it in you. There's no chance for you. Then this is what he tacks on to it. That which is born, excuse me, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Notice the two things he says about that. Unless one is born of water and spirit. Well, what did Ezekiel say? I will cleanse you with water and I will put my spirit within you. That is heart circumcision. Jesus says that heart circumcision makes you a whole new person. It is as if you are born again. It is as if you are born from God. He goes on to say this. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it, the chapter after Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel 37, for those of you who can count. And Ezekiel 37 is the Valley of Dry Bones. What happens in the Valley of Dry Bones? Ezekiel goes out. God takes him in the Spirit to see this valley, and it's full of bones. And they're not just bones, but they're dry. There is no life in them. There's nothing there. They have been people who have been tossed aside and left to die. And God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, but you know, I don't really want to answer. And God causes the bones to come together. There's a great rattling and sinew and muscle and skin is formed on them. And they stand and they, they, they're there, they're present, they're physical, but they're not alive. And God makes the wind blow on them, the breath to blow on them. Wind, breath, spirit, all the same word. In Greek, in Hebrew, all the same word. So the wind blows on them and they live. So when Jesus comes back and he says, the wind blows where it wants to, he's talking about the valley of dry bones. This is new life. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to have a heart circumcision. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. These were to be plain and evident, especially to a ruler of the Jews. Baptism then corresponds to that new life. It is not simply a, an attempt to make good on what God wants from us, but it is a provision of an entirely new life. Third, baptism is done through faith. Two small words in verse 12. Having been buried with him in, bapti in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. People who baptize their children, and I want to be very clear, we are not doing this simply to make dissension among Christians. We are not doing this because we think that we are better than Presbyterians. We're not doing this to cause, listen, Presbyterians are people of the faith and many Presbyterian churches are brother and sister churches. We can partner with them in the gospel and they proclaim the gospel, but we think that they are wrong in this for very, very important reasons. We're not doing this to cause dissension. We're doing this because we think that there's a lot of importance buried in the idea of baptism and to get it wrong is to fundamentally miss something of what the church is to be. When they baptize their children, those children cannot possibly have faith. They have no faith. Paul says very clearly, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith. Through faith. That raising is not just now all of a sudden a metaphorical raising. It is literally the plunging of someone below the water and being raised with him. He's talking about the actual act of baptism there. That act symbolizes being raised with him in death. But when he says you are raised in faith, he's saying that you were literally raised out of the water. Faith, faith was a part of that. It wasn't a tack on. It wasn't added later. It was part of what you did. Moreover, in Jeremiah 31, 34, what does he say? He says, I will be their God, they shall be my people, and no longer, this is almost always forgotten when Jeremiah is mentioned here, no longer shall each one of them teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. What, what does that mean? The Israelites had to continually look at one another as they followed foreign gods and say, hey, God of our fathers, that's 
you shouldn't be sacrificing to Baal and the Asherah poles and, and all these pagan rituals. You can't do that. You've got to follow the Lord. Know the Lord. He says, no longer will there be apostasy because when I change their hearts, they will know me. This isn't one of those issues where you're like, well, how well do I know him? That's not the point. You will grow in faith and you will grow in the substance of that faith, but you will know the Lord. He will not be a foreign person to you. The old covenant could not do that. The new covenant specifically does that. But what do Presbyterians and all those who baptize their children have to do? They have to introduce them to the Lord. They have to say, know the Lord, son. Know the Lord, daughter. Clearly, Jeremiah says, when that circumcision takes place, when God gets at your heart, no longer do you need to be told, know the Lord. The assumption there is, you will know him. You will know who he is in his person and in his being. You will know him by his saving acts. There is no teaching that needs to happen after that. There could be a deepening of knowledge, but not an introduction to it. When you baptize children, you have to introduce them to it. If they, all of a sudden were stranded on a desert island and raised by wolves, they would not know the Lord. If you, ladies and gentlemen, were left on a desert island, stranded by wolves, my assumption is you would know the Lord. That is Jeremiah 31, 34. An outward sign performed on a child is not enough to put them into the covenant. That was the whole, listen, that is the whole problem of physical circumcision, isn't it? Physical circumcision was a physical procedure done on a child who didn't know any better, who then couldn't keep the law. The whole point of redoing the picture of circumcision is because that physical sign performed on a child was never enough to put them in the real covenant. It was never enough to make them actually part of the people of God. But what do pedo-baptists do? People who baptize children, what do they do? They do a physical sign outward on their children and think that that makes them part of the covenant. That is a flat-out denial, denial of the new covenant. It is a flat denial of what heart circumcision is, and it's a denial of what baptism is actually symbolizing. It's not right or good or true. Four, baptism demonstrates the forgiveness of sins. In verse 13, it's directly linked. Baptism is directly linked to the forgiveness of sins. God made alive together with him. God has done this, having forgiven all our trespasses. Baptism is almost always clearly linked to the forgiveness of sins. Now, at least Roman Catholics and Lutherans are a little bit more on board with that. Okay? Roman Catholics think when you baptize your kids, it is literally getting rid of sin. Now, we can look at that and say, Pfft. but honestly, they're doing better. They're doing better than Presbyterians are because Presbyterians say it's all symbolic. There is no forgiveness of sins actuated there, okay? If somebody doesn't believe, you can't say that they're actually being forgiven for sins, but creedal Baptists, our baptism is linked directly to a proclamation of the gospel. It is linked directly to confession of the gospel. Therefore, it is linked directly to, directly to the forgiveness of sins. It is connected intricately with the, the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ. More than that, sprinkling in and of itself speaks of the washing away of sin. We've heard that language used here, right? 
baptism is a, an incredibly powerful symbol because not only does it signify death and resurrection when you are plunged into a substance that you cannot live in and eventually brought back out of that substance to live again, not only does that symbolize it, but we also use water to clean. We also use water to wash. Now what pedo-baptists are going to do is presumably for very, very good reasons, it is not right to plunge a little baby under the water and bring him back up. So, because of that, they have rightfully, and we should all agree, this is okay, they have rightfully decided that the mode of baptism doesn't matter, we're just going to sprinkle them, because it's, it's communicating cleanliness, it's, it's cleaning you from sin. That's the symbol of it. The problem is, that symbol in cleaning, by sprinkling, totally separates it from being unified with Christ. The beauty of immersion baptism is it both cleanses you and unifies you in the death and resurrection of our Lord. Here, notice how he talks about it. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. That is where your forgiveness lies. It lies in Christ. It doesn't lie in some outward mode of sprinkling. It doesn't lie in the fact that God hands out forgiveness like they're Tic Tacs. It doesn't work like that. He hands out forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So it is in him that you are baptized. It is in him that you are forgiven. It is in him that you are cleansed. Baptism demonstrates the forgiveness of sins. And last, baptism demonstrates reality. It doesn't demonstrate promise. This, from the Westminster Larger Catechism, 28.6. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered, okay? So they say, baptize your kids, okay? But it's not effective from that moment. So you baptize them. They're not saying that magically, poof, this child is now in the covenant forever and ever, amen. They're saying it's not effective in that moment. Yet, notwithstanding that, by the right use of this ordinate, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost. So they're saying it's not just offered as though forgiveness is there, but it's actually given to them. It's actually provided for them. When? To such as that grace belongs unto, or according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. So they're saying we sprinkle when God calls them forward, if God has elected that child after you have anointed him into the covenant, if God calls that child, then that baptism is effective post, right? I don't understand the timeline. The important thing is this. What was original circumcision doing? It was a reminder of the covenant. That says, I will, I will, I will. It was a reminder that God was going to act. Listen to the way that Paul writes about this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That is not promise language. That is reality language. You are not you're not entering into a promise of anything. That is literally the old covenant. Baptism is not a promise. 
of what will happen. It is a reality of what has happened. You have been forgiven. You have had your sins washed away. You have been unified with Christ. You have died to the law. You have been raised to newness of life. All of this is true in baptism. It is all beautifully symbolized in baptism by immersion, which no pedo-baptist will ever be able to gain. Kids, sorry, I have kids. I talk to kids all the time. You're not kids. Friends, the way we do baptism is important because only by a creedal immersion baptism do you get all of that beautiful symbolism and more. It is not just symbolic. It is the church's affirmation that you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord. It proclaims the gospel of the Trinity in one distinct brief act. It demonstrates our union with Christ and one another, our death and life now in him, our hope in the resurrection, the forgiveness of our sin, our passing through judgment, our hope of holiness in the shedding of sin, the reality of the new creation in Christ here and now, and the belief that all of the promises of God have found their yes and amen in Christ. That is what baptism symbolizes. No paedo-baptist can ever symbolize that. They lose almost all of it. As a matter of fact, they don't lose almost all of it. They literally lose all of it because there is no actual proclamation happening. When they sprinkle, they know very well that that child might walk away. There is no confession of faith. There's no even start for that child. Therefore, there is no real gospel being proclaimed there. It is an important issue. We're not even close to talking about church membership and how churches are supposed to handle polity with this kind of stuff. We're not even close to that, but those are important conversations. We are talking about the loss. Listen, if baptism, if it is only a symbolic act, you better get the symbolism right. And not getting the symbolism right is not good. This is a denial of not the gospel, but of the meaning of baptism that Christ has handed to us. It flattens the gospel out. And you lose such richness and beauty in it. Again, we are not doing this simply because we want to believe that we are right and they are wrong. We are doing it because it preserves for us a preaching and a proclamation and a glory in the gospel that otherwise we lose. It makes rich and powerful baptisms. It means that it is important for both the church and for you individually in a way, in a way that Pado baptists can never have. Paul continually talks to his believers and says, you think on your baptism. You want to chase after sin? Think about your baptism. You are disunified with one another? Think of your baptism. If, if you were baptized and you don't remember it and you had no part in it, I, I don't see what you gain from thinking about what your parents did to you when you were days old. But we thank God, do see the beauty and the richness of believer's baptism. And for that, we ought to praise God because it is a beautiful and powerful symbol of what God has done in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, let us be humble before you, not not disparaging others. We do not come to you with a haughty spirit thinking that we have answered time-old questions. And certainly, Father, if a Presbyterian minister was here or ministers who go through pedo-baptic rituals, 
they would have answers for these things. But Father, we are confident that we hold true to your word. We are confident that we rightly apply the symbolism of baptism. And Father, we are grateful that you have led us to that. We are grateful for your word because there is such beauty and glory in that ritual that we oftentimes miss. We oftentimes think of it simply as an initiation, that it simply introduces people into the kingdom of God, that it simply allows them to become members of a church. It is not simply that. It is more than that. And as much as we might bemoan other churches for minimizing that, Father, we need to admit that we do it on our own. How much more of a waste is it for Baptist churches to not see the beauty and the glory of what they hold dear when it is at our fingertips? It is, it is built into how we do what we do and still, still we blow off baptism. We think it's great for numbers and we think it's great for initiation, but we don't see the power and the beauty of what is actually being symbolized there. Let us, let us be broken for that. Let us be grateful, Father, that you have given us such a beautiful sign of entrance into your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.